This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanan. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have an incredible show today, actually. There's quite a bit of news to talk about. We're going to be starting with a really incredible interview with Miko Pellad, who's going to be talking about some recent polling evidence to show that even Jewish Americans see the Israeli state as an apartheid state. Really incredible stuff. And he's going to talk about that and the apartheid or racist citizenship law. And then probably really interesting news for you and I to talk about is that there are political protests and unrest going on in the West Bank, uh, really kind of confronting the Palestinian Authority for the first time in a long time, which really speaks to the things that we've been talking about for many years now. And then finally, you and I should reflect a little bit on historically, which many people don't realize, on the birth of Arab Talk with KPOO, goes back to Terry Collins, who who actually passed away recently. And Terry is a legendary figure in the activism community. We're going to talk a little bit about Terry, too. That's right. And, uh, you know, we're going to be- begin with an interview with Miko Pellet. He's, uh, of course, a uh, human rights activist and an author. And, uh, yeah, he's going to examine this new poll. Uh, he might have a little, bit, a little bit of a different perspective uh, on it. Also on Israel's uh, racist uh, citizenship law, which is actually what's been was was debated in the Knesset just uh, a few days ago. So let's uh, listen to Miko Pellad. A survey of U.S. Jewish voters taken after the Israel-Gaza conflict finds that a sizable minority believe some of the harshest criticisms of Israel including that it is committing genocide and apartheid. Among respondents to the survey commissioned by the Jewish Electorate Institute, a group led by prominent Jewish Democrats, 34% agreed that Israel's treatment of Palestinians is similar to racism in the United States. 25% agree that Israel is an apartheid state, and 22% agree that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians. Joining us to discuss this and more, Miko Pellet. Miko is a writer and human rights activist born in Jerusalem. He is the author of the books, The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Miko. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. So how accurate is this, Paul? Is this really a reflection, a reflection on American Jews in this country? And are you surprised, actually, by it? Well, first, thanks for having me again on the show. I, uh, you know, as they say, it's better to come late than not to show up at all. And so, you know, the world has known that Israel is an apartheid state for a very long time. Palestinians have certainly known that Israel is an apartheid state since 1948. And so a portion of American Jews have decided to come to the party 75 years late, but at least they're here now. Look, I think it's I think I think I think it's not a question of knowing. I think it's a question of number one, caring, and number two, understanding why it's important. I think more that I think the the more 
Jewish people and more American politicians to understand that Israel is an apartheid state. They just don't think there's anything wrong with that. In other words, they think it's okay, which is the problem. When you talk to liberal Zionists, they oppose racism. They oppose apartheid, except in one, in, in one instance, in one situation where Israel is concerned. So there's always a but at the end. When I talk to uh, liberal Zionists, they will say, you know, I agree with you 95%, 95%. And that, 90, that 5% that we disagree on is that apartheid is wrong in Palestine too. That the genocide of the Palestinians is wrong, just like the genocide of other people. You know, so that's usually the point where they disagree. Nobody will admit that they that they think apartheid is good. Nobody will admit that racism and and genocide and ethnic cleansing is good. But Israel gets a break. Why? Well, because then they have all these explanations why Israel gets a break. But uh, well, I think it's very important. How do they justify this to themselves? You know. As you know, the history of civil rights in, in this country, many Jewish activists were in the forefront of uh, the civil rights movement. And then when it comes to Palestine, as you've said, they're willing to give Israel as a pass. Uh, I mean, give, give Israel a pass. And, and my question is, how do they justify it? Is it based on ideology? Is it based on religion? How do they justify it to themselves? Well, the entire Zionist narrative is built on justifying apartheid and genocide and ethnic cleansing. That's what the entire Zionist narrative is about. That's why you've got the narrative that says that all Jewish people are descendants of the ancient Hebrews from 3,000 years ago. Even if it is true, that still doesn't justify the ethnic cleansing and the apartheid. But they allow that to come in and say, well, you know, we were here first, so it's okay. Like Naftali Bennett said with Mehdi Hassan, you know, read the Bible. Never mind the Bible doesn't say that God gave Israel the land. It has nothing, you know, never mind the fact that it's not even true if you believe it. But, you know, that's their narrative. We are here first, so we are allowed to do this. Then you've got the Holocaust. If that doesn't work, then they bring back the Holocaust. They say, well, the Holocaust showed us that Jews don't have a choice, you know, which is, of course, complete nonsense. The vast majority of Holocaust survivors were not Zionists. They did not go to Israel. The vast majority of Holocaust survivors, the vast majority, over 90%, either went back to Europe or came to America, to other places. So obviously, this argument doesn't hold. But they throw all these arguments, and then they throw an anti-Semitism, and then throw this. The entire narrative, the entire Hasbara, the Zionist uh, PR system, is built in order to justify and say, well, yes, you know, we supported human rights, we supported... We were supported uh, uh, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. We support civil rights in America. We send, you know, rescue teams to wherever there's uh, an earthquake or natural disaster. The Israeli military is always there to save. But in the case of Israel, you know, we have a special dispensation. We're allowed to do what we want to the Palestinians. That's exactly what it is. You know, that's exactly how, that's exactly why they have this particular narrative. You said you welcomed uh, you you welcomed the late comers to the party. Meaning, uh, I mean, isn't it good news now that we have this poll conducted by a Jewish organization that they are admitting that there is still twenty five percent that's a quarter of American Jews in this country, and the numbers actually go higher the younger the age is. Isn't this a 
I mean, is this kind of a glimmer of hope that the whole mentality, at least with the young generation in the United States, is changing? Hence, we're going to see more people getting more vocal in, in their opinion. Well, that depends. I don't know. If it makes a difference, if they act, then yes. If they sit down and they don't act, they only answer the poll, and it makes no difference whatsoever. So just because they say they think a certain way, we're not there yet. When they stand up, when they demand that their congressmen, when they demand that their elected officials boycott Israel, when they demand sanctions against Israel, when they demand that Zionism, uh, that there be no tolerance for Zionism anywhere, then yes, then they, of course, then that's significant. But if they sit at home and, and, and just answer a poll, it means nothing to anybody. So it all depends on what they do with, with this opinion of theirs. Just because they have an opinion, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. You know, many people can have an opinion. But in America, the, the Zionists learned something very, very important very early on. That in America, all politics is local. That's why everybody, anybody almost running for school board of a city, school board, will get an invitation, will be, will be sent information by the Zion, different Zionist organizations in every state. Running for school board, for city council, for mayor, for police chief, for sheriff, everybody in local politics gets some kind of a touch uh, a message, an invitation from the Zionists. And they do it in a very pleasant way. They do it in a very nice way, you know. And so it's hard to say no, every mayor, of course. And then it goes up the chain, of course, state legislatures and so on and so on. So they understand this and this is what matters. So if these Jewish people, 25%, if it's really that much, if, you know, stand up and say, in our school board, in our city, we do not want any Zionists. We want to make it absolutely clear. We want to see a vow that they will reject Zionism because Zionism is a racist, violent ideology. Well, then of course it makes a difference. But if they don't say that, if like Bernie Sanders, they stand up and they say, well, we need to tone down the rhetoric, tone down the rhetoric as Israel is bombing and slaughtering people in Gaza. Why tone down the rhetoric now? Why tone down rhetoric at all about, about, about Palestine? So it all depends on what they do with this. You know, It all depends on how, how they move forward with it. Action speaks louder than words. That's Absolutely. You're saying. Moving on to the citizenship and entry into Israel law, the uh, Israeli government recently failed to renew its controversial citizenship and entry into Israel law. The law, for those who don't know, prevents Palestinian spouses from, uh, um, from living together legally in occupied East Jerusalem or uh, Israel proper if one partner is from the West Bank and the other is from Jerusalem or Israel, uh, they basically need a permit. They cannot live together. It also prevents Palestinians who are married to Palestinians with Israeli citizenship from being naturalized, uh, unlike the spouses of Jewish citizens who are allowed to apply for Israeli citizenship. Uh, as you know, uh, Jews from across the globe automatically are entitled to apply for Israeli uh, citizenship. It's a little bit confusing for a lot of people who don't know like what's going on. It sounded like it was a victory, you know, what happened recently in the Israeli Knesset, but it's not. Explain why. Well, you know, the, 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 the politics right now within, Israel, within the state of Israel is that Benjamin Netanyahu is forging his way back to the prime minister's seat. That's really what all of Israeli politics is about right now. 
one thing, how to get Benjamin Netanyahu back into his seat. The current government has no uh, majority. It's relying on some uh, what they consider left wing and, and some uh, Palestinian uh, members of the Knesset and so on. And, and so, but it's a right wing government. It's a government that actually ideologically is aligned with Benjamin Netanyahu and his what's called the right wing bloc, which is almost half of the Knesset, which represents a large part of the electorate. The vast majority of the Israeli electorate is far right wing, very radical, very fanatic Zionists. Um, but they ran again, they're running against each other. So they need Netanyahu's support and his right-wing bloc support for their legislation, for their agenda, because they are a right-wing government led by a, by a fanatic right-wing prime minister, Naftali Bennett. So it creates these very, very strange political, uh, political reality in Palestine right now, in, in occupied Palestine, in Israeli politics right now. I, I don't think there's any doubt that Netanyahu is going to come back, uh, and probably sooner than most people think. But the, when you have an issue like this, which is basically a very basic Zionist issue, how to continue the racist policies, how to maintain and strengthen the apartheid regime, you know, at first they said this law is necessary, or this section of the law, which prevents Palestinians uh, who marry Palestinians who are not citizens of Israel from marrying Palestinians who are citizens of Israel and living in Israel is security, because how do you know if they're not a terrorist? I mean, any Palestinian could be a terrorist. So that was kind of the security uh, mask. But that was originally, now they're not even saying that. They're saying, no, this is demographic threat. We really want all these masses of Palestinians marrying citizens of Israel and taking advantage of, uh, of the status. And, you know, we'll have this masses of Palestinians coming into our country. You know, but it's all based on the inner workings of the apartheid regime as though the West Bank is not a part of Israel, as though the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem are somehow independent entities. It's all governed by Israel. It's all one state. It's just an apartheid system that treats some people with privilege and some people without the privilege. So this notion that somehow these people who live in a particular area can retain a citizenship, but no more than a certain percentage. These people who live in another part of the area, which they admit is Israel, they call it Judea and Samaria. We are not going to grant them citizenship and then we're not even going to allow them to marry each other, even though they're governed by the same state, even though they live under the same state, we won't allow them to marry each other. Now, if an Israeli from Tel Aviv wants to marry an Israeli who lives in Judea and Samaria, in Hebron, for example, in the settlement in Hebron, there's no problem. It's only a problem if a Palestinian from the Naqab or Yaffa or somewhere wants to marry a Palestinian from Hebron, then that's not allowed. But, you know, these are all parts of the inner workings of the apartheid system. It's all one state. They're all governed by the same government. If you're a Jew, you have the same rights everywhere. If you're a Palestinian, then, of course, your rights are determined by the specific geography. You know, and that's part of this very complicated uh, web of apartheid laws that exists that exists there. And this is again, they're, they're, they're pro to them, it's very natural to support this. For, for you know, for Israelis, don't see a problem with this. But I think it's important to break away from the Zionist perspective, from the Zionist paradigm, and see it as all one country, one state, governed by an apartheid regime, 
who gives me all the privilege and denies that same privilege from you, Adijani, right? This is exactly what we're talking about. I mean, it is me and you. I get all the privilege and I don't even know if you're allowed to return. Or, you know what I mean? That's exactly what we're talking about. It's a law yeah, that is designed for that. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And, and it's not even uh, within um, historic Palestine, but also, uh, you know, for for Palestinian diaspora who, uh, you know, lost their homes and, and towns and villages. And, and, and on this topic, last time we talked about the ethnic cleansing of Sheikh Jarrah, it's less in the news now, you know, even though the ethnic cleansing continues shifted to Silwan. Silwan kind of made some headline. Again, it's now kind of like not much in the news, and I'm talking about here in the United States and internationally. And then recently I was reading in, uh, I think, the Haaretz. Now Israel has plans to uh, build uh, villas and, and, and housing for, for wealthy Israelis in the village of Lifta, you know, which is, as you know, just like hundreds of Palestinian villages was violently depopulated uh, from its Palestinian inhabitants in 1948. And for some reason, it was left alone, even though the village was destroyed, but left. And then all of a sudden, the plans are back on the table to, uh, I don't know, just maybe build another Beverly Hills or Herzliya, or I don't know. what. What's your take on this? Well, I think what we've seen... Um, is an acceleration of the anti-Arabizing of what's left of, of, of Jerusalem. So, of course, Lifta is right as you enter Jerusalem from the west, from, from the direction of Jaffa. And you can't really see it. It's hard to see sometimes through the main road, but if you pay attention, then you see the, the entire side of the hill entering as you enter Jerusalem. The houses, the houses are still there. There are many, many homes that are still houses that are still there, and there are, you know, a lot of several NGOs that are working to to preserve it and protect it, and you know, the, the, and of course, then the Zionists want to destroy it. And it's a beautiful, it's a very, it's a beautiful area. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful valley, and so yes, it would be perfect for uh, for some kind of a, of a wealthy neighborhood. But you know, we see that in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan and the old city. You know, this is part of the of the recreation of the Zion of the of the Zionist recreate what they believe is a recreation of this great Jewish Jerusalem, which for them needs to begin in Ramallah in the north and end in Bethlehem in the south, with uh, Al Aqsa compound in the center with the Jewish temple. You're talking about uh, Greater Jerusalem. Yeah. So to them, this is all this is part of the plan. This is all part of the plan. Well, having Lifta there, having this these homes there empty and reminding people that there used to be Palestinians there is, is, is bad for business. It's bad for politics. So let's, you know, build a beautiful uh, neighborhood there and, and, you know, people will forget. You know, let's get rid of Sheikh Jarrah with all its historical significance, you know, to Palestinians, uh, you know, to, to, to Palestinian Jerusalemites and beyond, get rid of, you know, the, all, all of that and build housing for settlers. Let's get rid of Silwan and build, continue this, again, this archaeological, mythological part that they're building, calling it the city of David. Let's get rid of Palestinians from the, from the old city, particularly the Muslim quarter, but from the old city in general, and, and occupy it with settlers. This is all part of the same thing. And it's, of course, it's been going on for many years. And like you say, sometimes something peaks, and then we hear about it. And then it, it dies down. It's not that it stopped. The violence of Sheikh Jarrah did not stop. 
you know, in Silwan, this has been going on for, for at least a, a decade, uh, maybe even more. I can't even remember when was the first time I went to protest in Silwan and to the Silwan Information Center. By the way, they have a good, it's a very good website. I recommend people check it out. Silwan, Silwan Information Center, yeah, it's called, I believe. Um, it's a great center. It's a great kind of a community center. And they get closed down, they get destroyed, they get arrested and so on. And you walk down and say, well, I was there in May. It's like yeah, the tension is, 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 is disturbing. Even you just walk down the street and more and more Israeli settlers and more and more Palestinians have been evicted and so on. So this is all part of this greater plan to de-Arabize and Judaize uh, all of Jerusalem and the greater Jerusalem, like you said. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, you're absolutely right. As far as coverage right here in the United States, these stories don't even make it, uh, even even when they peak. I mean, I we I get more uh, of this coverage from the Israeli press, Channel 10 and Haaretz and whatever, than we get right here in the U.S. I mean, they don't talk about it. I don't think yeah. even the whole issue about Lifta has been uh, even brought to anyone's attention here. No, and it wouldn't. And again, it kind of goes back to that initial thing you said that we talked about, about the Jews suddenly discovering that there's an apartheid regime. Well, where are they? You know, Jerusalem is being destroyed. And once it's destroyed, there's, it's not, you're not going to be able to bring back the, 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 the glorious Palestinian city, this glorious you know, city that has a rich Muslim and Christian history and sites. And, and by the way, they destroy Muslim and Christian sites. All around Silwan, they've destroyed a great deal of, of, of archaeology that didn't fit their narrative. Because Silwan is just outside the old city, just as you come down from the Al-Aqsa and the, and the Western Wall. You know, they, they do that all the time. Well, where are, the, where are these Jews? Two million people living in a concentration camp in Gaza. Where are these Jews? Thousands of political prisoners, children being tortured. You know, Yad Burnat from, from uh, Bilain, who's, who, who, made, who became famous because he dedicated his life to peaceful, nonviolent resistance. His entire life, his, his, his two boys have been tortured for always, oh, oh, more than two months already. Where are these? Where are they? So from time to time, there's a small group here, a small group there, but 25%? Stand up. Speak up. What are you waiting for? That's my question. All of this is taking place and nothing is being said. Well, maybe uh, maybe there is a change. I was like, actually, I'm more hopeful by this poll than you are, uh, obviously, because, you know, we usually don't hear about these polls. I mean, we know there are organizations here that kind of have progressed, like Jewish Voice for Peace yeah. and, and, and others, but then actually now to see that there are numbers behind this. And I believe, I personally believe when they say 25%, maybe it's 50%, and the other 25% are just afraid. They, they know yeah. that it is apartheid, as you said, speak up. They're not because they are afraid that the wrath of Zionist organizations will target them. We've seen this. I mean, oh, you know. Absolutely. You know, I mean, many, many uh, brave American Jews who actually support the Palestinian uh, uh, cause, they are banned from traveling in, into into Israel and they got deported from there. So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm actually curious, one final quick question, because you keep coming back to Netanyahu and you, you have convinced me that Netanyahu is going to somehow return, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and you just think that this whole... Charade, Bennett, 
scans, etc. That's just going to be a temporary placeholder for him. Just quickly, please explain why. Well, if you look at the numbers, they don't have the numbers. They cannot pass any legislation. Now, the, this government is made of the most right-wing elements in Israeli politics, Naftali Bennett being the head, right? The people who voted for him didn't want him to sit with the Palestinians and with uh, even Lapid, who was kind of a center or whatever it's called, center-left or whatever. That's not what they voted for. They wanted a, a strong right-wing government, uh, you know, arguably with Netanyahu at its head and that entire right-wing bloc that he brings with him. Now, how do you pass legislation when you've got all these different groups within it and you don't even have a majority? At best, they have 60. They only passed, they only were able to actually form a government because one, some, one Palestinian abstained. So they had, you know, they had 60 to 59. I mean, it's, it's 60 to 59. I mean, that's not going to work. You can't do anything. And there's always a threat by, the, by one side or another that if they go through with a certain legislation, then that part of the that part of the coalition will collapse. And of course, Netanyahu is sitting there, very happily, with his arms open, waiting for this government to fall back into his arms, and actually beg him to come back and lead. And I'm I would guess it'll be some kind of a national unity government, which would have a very broad coalition, maybe as many as seventy or even eighty members of Knesset, and then Netanyahu will really be. Very, be able to do whatever he wants, and he won't need the Palestinians. He doesn't want Mansour Abbas and Ram. He doesn't want Meretz, you know, even though they are, they seem to be doing fine with, with Bennett. So this is a, this is this is this is not a, this is not a government that can function, and they're pretending that they're functioning. That you know, every minister has his Twitter account, and they're showing all their achievements, even though they've only been in office a few days. It, it has no chance. And Netanyahu is a very, very patient man. He's a very powerful man. He holds all the strings. He's the one really that holds the stability right now of the Zionist state. It's all in his hands. And uh, th- I have no doubt that he's going to come back and come back very strong. Miko Pellad, as always, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's uh, Miko Pellad, Israeli human rights uh, activist, speaking about Recent polling look, you know, saying that even Jewish Americans see Israel as an apartheid state, but really drilling down on the racist so-called citizenship laws, which privilege one class of citizens in Israel over another, specifically Jewish citizens, to the detriment of all other citizens who happen not to be Jewish, Muslim, Christian, any other religion. So a, a very kind of powerful, wide-ranging interview, Jamal. That's right, Jess. So, so we've been talking about this topic for ages. Forever. And Ever. many things have been kind of, uh, you know, closing in on this whole myth that Israel is a democracy. Because every time you raise these issues, of course, the Hasbaristas, as uh, we call them <laughs> right here in the United States, and Israel surrogates uh, in Congress or APAC, they'll come up with a new concoction or new story to whitewash Israel's image. So remember just this poll, which was conducted just a few days ago, it's very important, and it's conducted by, by the way, by a, a Jewish organization. Right. Found that 25% of U.S. Jews believe that Israel is an apartheid state. That's 
But Jamal, that's extraordinary. And the number goes up for yeah. for those who are under the age of 40. So you, so the number can reach up to 30%. Wow. And then they have a bunch of questions, just it's very interesting for our audience to also to look at this poll. Like, uh, you know, people talk about comparing racism in Israel with racism in the United States. That's, that's one thing. Talking about genocide, that Israel commits genocide uh, against Palestinians. So there were a bunch of questions, but the average is 25%. They believe that Israel is an apartheid state and it's a racist state and it's just like at the same level of uh, South Africa. Now, my conversation with Miko Pellet is that's why I said he has an interesting take. You know, of course, this is important. And the reason why I'm saying this is important, but it doesn't come in, in, in a vacuum, you and I have been talking about this for ages. Uh, we've done several shows about this topic. And within the past year, you had many things happening. Beth Salem right. said right. Israel is apartheid. You have Human Rights Watch declaring also right. Israel's apartheid. You have the international, the ICC criminal court want to examine Israel's basically atrocities in Gaza. And so you have a lot of things. It didn't come out of a vacuum. And every report that came, uh, APAC, and again, I said it's surrogates in Congress, just wanted to brush it under the rug. They, they just ignore it and, and just give this Israel exceptionalism that we talked about. Now, Miko Pellet said, yes, it is encouraging to have this news. And he says uh, his, his own words, better late than never. <laughs> right, but right. he also questions, okay, it's good to say this pause, but what are you doing about it? So, exactly. so it's basically he's saying, Action speaks louder than words. Like, okay, you could have these polls, now the number's 25%, maybe next year will be 30%, but if the majority remains silent, because, you know, the history uh, of Jews in the United States has been very proactive supporting the civil rights movement, very proactive active criticizing apartheid in South Africa, but by and large, silent about apartheid in Israel. And so that's what he was questioning, which I feel is very important because, as you know, yes. Miko Pellet is Israeli, he's Jewish, and he's very critical of uh, apartheid in Israel. Yeah, and, you know, Miko's voice is very important and his analysis is very important. And usually I'm the one who's more pessimistic and Arab talk, but I have to tell you, Jamal, listening to Miko and looking at these results, I was not as pessimistic as I usually am because I'll go back to what you said before. The walls are closing in on the apartheid regime of Israel. And if you look at that data more carefully, there's, there's a gap in terms of, you know, Jewish Americans and their age because as the, as Jewish Americans grow up in the United States. They get exposed to the history of Israeli apartheid. They get exposed to human and civil rights in this country and progressive uh, discussions about what's happening. They're changing their ideas. They don't have the same feeling and attachment to the apartheid regime that the older generation of Jewish Americans have. So 
I'm actually encouraged. I was actually surprised that it's 25% because the question, Jamal, was not, you know, do you have some concerns about the state of Israel, blah, blah, blah. It's do you see the, the Israeli state as an apartheid state? That's an extremely strong statement. Now, we know that Bet Salem has come out and said that. We know that Human Rights Watch, we know about the ICC. But for this to filter down to 25% of Jewish Americans, I believe, is is very significant. Now, to the point about words or, you know, actions are stronger than words. Yeah, of course, because where this has to get through, Jamal, is because, as usual, the U.S. Congress, the Senate, and the House are way behind you know, where their electorate are. I mean, the the congressmen and the senators are so far behind on this issue that it's going to be an uphill battle to get them to, you know, see the reality. And the only way they will, Jamal, and you and I know this, it has to cost them politically to continue to support an apartheid regime. You're absolutely right, and unfortunately, it has not cost them politically. Instead, they still keep drawing on the the APAC money, APAC support, and and that's what they're looking uh, at. Right, uh, and uh, sadly, they're gonna go in the uh, garbage uh, bin of history because that's right. uh, They've been wrong before, and they will be wrong again, as we see the rest of the world. Uh, the world is waking up to this and uh, people are facing the reality. Uh, Mika also discussed Israel's citizenship uh, law, uh, which basically... So-called, so-called, so-called citizenship. Was, which was <laughs> debated uh, a couple of weeks ago in the Israeli Knesset. But then again, here's another example where he, you know, he and I talked about, uh, and uh, Mika was born in Jerusalem, I was born in Jerusalem, so that's the example. He can go in and out, uh, no and problem, can't. even though he's a, he's a critic. But also, uh, you know, um, if you're a Palestinian, and that's the most important thing about the law, if you marry someone, if you're from the West Bank and you got married to a Palestinian, for let's say from, from Jaffa or Haifa, you have a problem. Uh, right. Or if you marry someone from Ramallah, you have a problem. There is no uh, reunification of family when, uh, on the other hand, uh, any Jewish Israeli can marry someone from anywhere and bring That's him right. or her to the country and they become automatically uh, an Israeli citizen. Uh, so you have a lot of things. And that's and he said initially when Israel, of course, came up with this law, they basically cited security like, you know, all Palestinians are terrorists. So if you marry, if you're a Palestinian living, let's say, in Haifa and you marry the Palestinian from Ramallah, then uh, your wife... It's a security or, yeah, threat. It's a security threat. Of course, you know, we know that this is such a racist uh, uh, attitude to begin with. But, uh, but anyway, that's not the case. The case is really controlling the demographic and controlling... A Jewish majority, which they publicly talk about in the Knesset. Uh, politicians talk about Jewish majority. Jamal, the Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, has talked about this the entirety of his political career. He's advocated as the, you know, now the Prime Minister has advocated for having less so, you know, in quotes, we say less Arabs, fewer Arabs, meaning no more Palestinians in historic Palestine. This is this isn't this would be accurate to say this is the stated policy of the, 
of the apartheid regime of Israel now, isn't it? It is. It is. It's very obvious. And then yet you have defenders in Congress on both sides Unbelief. of the of the aisle. I mean, those who are will be critical because we know the United States, we have this also people have this sentiment, like, let's maintain a white majority in this country. You know, we know who they are. It's not right. a, it's not a policy of this country. There, there is that sentiment amongst a uh, a group uh, of the population. Nevertheless, imagine if in Congress uh, the the Speaker of the House or, or or the President of the United States or the Vice President of the United States says something like, "We need to maintain a white majority in this country." What will happen? Uh yeah. I uh, but I hate to break this to you, Jamal. There, we're not that far away from that being said. Yeah, but the, it's not policy. We know it's not policy. We know yet, but we are the Trumpsters but we, would love to do. But that, just to make but, the comparison, yeah, it would be outrageous. You know, that was a stated policy behind you know the secession of the Confederacy during the time of you know leading up to the Civil War and afterwards. But you're exactly right. Well, Israel seems to be living in the Confederacy time. They absolutely are living in the Confederacy. They, but they don't want to secede, Jamal. They, they actually just want to get rid of the indigenous communities in historic Palestine, just like indigenous communities here in the United States were ethnically cleansed and African Americans were put into slavery. I mean, we've been making that analogy for many, many years. And the more evidence we see, the more social media gets out, the more we hear from Human Rights Watch and Bet Salem and other Israeli human rights activists, the more what we've been saying for many years is is coming is coming true. That the apartheid regime of Israel is a racist state built on racist principles, built on ethnic cleansing of Palestinians with a racist citizenship policy. And you're exactly right, the people in Congress who continue to support this apartheid regime will be relegated to the dustbin of history, just like, you know, previous racist uh, uh, regimes. There's no doubt about it. It's just a question, Jamal, I think, of how fast, how soon, how quickly that'll happen. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. I want to shift gear here, uh, Jess. Uh, yeah, Jamal, I want to ask you about this because this is really very interesting to me. You've been reading the Arab media, the, the press in Palestine. I mean, the fact that there are protests against the Palestinian Authority now and uh, Abu Maz and Mahmoud Abbas, this is, this is kind of a big deal. And it comes after the heels of what we talked about, uh, this political assassination uh, or political murder, if you will, recently of a Palestinian activist. But it seems like there's a lot of uh, unrest right now in the West Bank. Yeah, so at least uh, 70 Palestinians have been arrested since we, wow. we last spoke. Uh, and as the protest broke out over uh, Banat's uh, death, and this is according to Lawyers for Justice, a local rights uh, watch group, because, of course, the Palestinian Authority is not going to give you the numbers. Right. Uh, and then charges of sedition were brought against 29 of them. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, this is why uh, the excuse that they, they put forward for their arrest. Palestinian human rights organizations and civil society and international NGOs have collectively condemned these abuses and violence that we have been seeing in the in the past few weeks. Uh, just 
Yet the oppression uh, continues as we as we speak. It's really part and parcel of a systematic attempt by the PA to stifle political opposition and freedoms. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. They want no critics of either or both. I mean, Mahmoud Abbas persona as president or the Palestinian Authority as a whole, and and so. Uh, as you know, since the Oslo Accords were signed, um, the power of the Palestinian Authority, not in front of the international community and not in front of Israel, but in front, but in controlling the West Bank, has exponentially grown after they limited Hamas into Gaza, after that right. split. But the biggest thing that grew, Jess, even with the financial problems, with the bad economy, with uh, uh, some of its... Uh, aid, like U.S. aid stopping, then resuming, whatever. The only thing that we actually uh, mentioned it many times, the only thing that didn't stop is money going to the Palestinian Authority's security. That's right. So the security sector in Palestine, and this shouldn't be a surprise to you, is has a budget that is larger than education, larger Healthcare. than health, and, right. and larger than agriculture the agriculture sectors combined, combined. combined. Yeah, so, yeah. so so, this is, you know, I mean, this is why we're seeing this. And as, as you know, we've discussed before, uh, just, you know, the security forces are, uh, is, is uh, you know, they're funded and trained by international donors in the United States, which uh, several times stopped its USA, did never stopped it, uh, not, not, never stopped the flow of money to the security, to the security forces, forces, the EU, the United Kingdom, and Canada. They all put money, invest money, not in health, not in education, but they not in infrastructure. Not infrastructure. So it's really the security. So that's now we have this major issue is you have a weakened Palestinian authority, meaning as far as healthcare, as far as running the country, as far as liberating an inch out of uh, Palestine, basically, which they, they haven't. Instead, they've lost thousands and thousands of acres to, to settlers, in, especially in Area C. But the security forces keep growing. They keep getting money. They're well-trained. And now they are directed by presidential orders to target people who criticize the government. Well, the bad, the bad news about that, Jamal, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is there's a 100% chance that Abu Mazen, the Palestinian Authority, and his cronies attempting to do this to quiet Palestinians who object to this corrupt way of managing you know, Palestinian life is going to hurt. The bad news is it's going to hurt a lot of Palestinians. The good news is it will never work. And that we see regimes that do this or organized political groups that do this uh, are typically when they feel like their power is slipping, when they feel like they've been backed into a corner, or they feel like they're near the end of their, you know, the end of their time. And I think, as you and I have said on many times here on Arab Talk, the Palestinian Authority, in terms of their ability to govern, to manage, and to improve the day-to-day -day life of Palestinians in the West Bank, let alone in Gaza, 
is gotten worse over the years, not better. So my question to you, why are they, I mean, they're not surprised that Palestinians are uh, protesting this. They're not, they're not surprised, I'm sure, that uh, murdering Nizar Benat uh, is going to spark outrage among the entirety of the Palestinian community. So are we, I know this is a hard question. Um, do you think this is a tipping point for the Palestinian Authority or is this just a bump in the road? I don't know if it's a tipping point and uh, I don't think it's just like a casual bump in the road. I think it's a wake-up call. And oh. the wake-up, I think that's what it is. I think it's a wake-up call and they, they, they are being put on notice that business as usual is not going to continue. You cannot keep silencing uh, people who speak against you. You are being criticized by those people because you have done nothing since Oslo. In fact, the country has moved backward. All the dreams and the promises that you 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 put uh, you know you presented to the public is not sitting well with them, right? And that's why. They are criticizing Mahmoud Abbas, who hasn't had hasn't had an election uh, now going on the fourth term. Technically, you know, we call it a term, and right. uh, you know, there is corruption, there is nepotism, there there are a lot of things uh, going on uh, that people are unhappy about. The settlers' uh, numbers have quadrupled. Right, uh, people are seeing, you know, whether if you live in Ramallah, you're not too far from Jerusalem to see that the Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah are getting ethnically cleansed, and there is right. nothing that the Palestinian Authority can do about it. I mean, not even a phone call. I mean, it's, it's like, it's all talk, talk, talk. You know, if, if you sign a peace agreement, like with Oslo, you should have at least peace, and you don't have peace. You haven't provided peace, you haven't provided a, an independent state, and, and people are on a daily basis, getting ethnically cleansed. Their land right. is stolen by settlers in Area C of the West Bank, which is the largest area, basically. And so I don't know what they're waiting for. I mean, the to me, the big catastrophe will happen is eventually, as you know, Mahmoud Abbas is 85 years old and everybody, no one lives forever. And there is no plan B. The authority, the so-called Palestinian authority, has not put forward a plan B. And when pa no. plan A collapses, that's the big worry. Are we going to see a civil war? Uh, or you got somebody like uh, Bennett who's saying, I don't care, we'll take over the West Bank, we'll take over Gaza. Are we going to go to, I mean, a full control? I mean, Israel controls anyway, uh, the West Bank. But anyway, to have to send... To have a public public uh, declaration that they will, you know, continue the control. You know, Jamal, that's a very good point. I happen to think that that's the most lo likely outcome, because unfortunately, Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, and the Palestinian Authority have failed, as you said, to establish a succession plan. Let alone, you know, have free and fair elections. And because of that, when, when Abu Mazen, you know, passes on, and as you said, he's not going to live forever, there's going to be chaos. Well, there that, will that's be the, 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 the question is, is that what are they waiting for? A miracle? Well, I mean, you know, the expression, uh, you know, repeating something over and over again and, and 
keep saying and failing at it and keep repeating it is a sign of insanity, right? Right, thinking that you're going to have a different outcome. Yeah, that I think, Jamal, this is just a, I, I think, you know, we're looking at maybe not full-blown civil war among Palestinians, but we're looking at a kind of chaos and fragmentation that will give people like Naftali Bennett and the Israeli you know, extremist uh, parts of the uh, of their government an opportunity to think that they can declare full annexation over the entirety of historic Palestine. I think that's a real possibility. Yeah, I mean, so the message at the end, it's not like Palestinians hate the Palestinian Authority because many of their cousins, brothers, sisters, etc., they're part and parcel of it. They work there. That's many right. Many people who who criticize the security forces, they have cousins and relatives right. who are part. They are just looking at them and saying, do something useful. Do something. Do something that can enhance our lives. And that's why they are criticizing those who are in charge. Jabal, listen, it's not rocket science. It's true everywhere in the world. You want your life to be better. You want the life for your children to be better. You want safety for you and your family. You want access to healthcare and education. You want functioning infrastructure. These are just basic things that have been denied Palestinians in the beginning and for the, and for the you know, uh, first and foremost because of the occupation. But the Palestinian Authority hasn't done anything, as you've said, and I agree completely. What have they delivered on since Oslo? More land has been stolen. More people have lost their homes. People's standard of living has gotten worse, not better. So what, do they really have a leg to stand on? I don't think so. And I think we're headed for some real chaotic times. So Jess, uh, we are going to talk about a little bit of sad news, but also, you know, we want to celebrate the life of Terry Collins an incredible uh, human, an incredible human you being. You know, man. Terry, uh, the co-founder, president, and volunteer programmer at KPO, uh, passed away uh, last uh, Wednesday night. Uh, you and I have known Terry for two two decades at least. At least, yeah. And you know, I'm sure you have very memorable stories to tell about Terry. Well, I think you and I have a lot of stories to tell, but before we get to the stories, you know, um, you know, our deepest condolences to the Collins family and to the community of KPO for losing such a heroic uh, figure as Terry Collins. I mean, Terry Collins was part of the um, 1969 uh, uh, uprising, intifada, if you will, of San Francisco State. Uh, and the creation of the Ethnic Studies Department. He was part of the Blank Black Panther movement. He was someone who was a heroic uh, fighter for human rights. He was part of the San Francisco, is it eight or nine? I, I forget which one, but, you know, he was, he he's legendary in the African-American community. And I, I, I think one of the things that maybe people in Arab, on Arab Talk who don't, who may not know the birth of Arab Talk started with Terry Collins reaching out to you and I 16 years ago <laughs> and, and asking, 
do you want to do something? Because we have this hour opening up at KPO and we, and he said, we don't feel like the Palestinian voice is heard enough and we want that voice to be represented at KPOO and in the San Francisco Bay Area. So really, Arab Talk's birth and its evolution, in fact, owes itself to Terry Collins. And for that, I think you and I will be grateful to him and his memory forever. Yeah, he stood for uh, social justice. He also stood behind uh, Ahmed uh, program. That's right. Uh, and, uh, and many times I would, uh, outside KPO, of course, you and I used to see him uh, all the time, pre-COVID, uh, I should say, all the time at KPO. I used to run uh, into him at San Francisco State University. We, right. Uh, he was part of the spirit of 1969, basically, that created the School of Ethnic Studies there. But he was an ardent, ardent supporter of the Palestinian cause and also made sure, wanted to make sure that uh, the Ahmed program at San Francisco State University uh, not only continue, uh, but flourish. But uh, I used to get a lot of uh, uh, enjoyment sitting with him and talking about his travels, Jess. This is something right. he didn't share. That uh, Terry, as a young man, which was, uh, you know, very impressive because he didn't have any money uh, to kind of just... Uh, pack his bags and decide to travel to North Africa and the Middle East and 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 just basically hitchhike his way in North Africa and go to right. Morocco. And in he the would 60s. tell me Yeah. In the sixties. Exactly. And he would tell me stories. He didn't of course speak the language and very few people he encountered spoke English, but he managed to be a guest in many uh, homes uh, in North Africa and he'll tell me funny stories uh, about his uh, adventures. Yeah, and you know, Jamal, every time, especially at the beginning when Terry's health was much better, when we would come in to do our shows, when we were doing them pre-COVID in studio, it would be Terry Collins who would be there at the desk and we would have these very kind of engaged, lively political discussions about everything from Palestine to civil rights to slavery to you know, apartheid Israel, the, the, he was incredible in terms of the breadth and the depth of his understanding of uh, the political, you know, pol politics and the political struggles of people everywhere in the world. So I, I remember those conversations. He would give us a hard time if we failed to cover something on Arab talk that he, he, he thought was very... He sent us a text message. <laughs> <laughs> he would send us text messages and... Forever, he was the one who was uh, supporting Arab Talk, and as I said, you know, you know, I know that we'll be eternally grateful to Terry for his dedication to human rights, civil rights, and justice for everybody, but especially to giving Arab Talk and and you and I the opportunity to start this, you know, uh, journey on KPO and how it's expanded. You know, we'll we'll always be very grateful to Terry for that. Well, uh, we are dedicating this show to, to Terry Collins. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows. And we will see you next week. See you next week. Mm -hmm.